Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Saren. Good to see you. Uh, so excited to have you because you're building out this creative startup in the content and creative space, but also because you've been such an accomplished person in the arts and space. So I'd love to hear your story. So Saren, could you just introduce yourself to everybody? Hey, hi everybody. Saren here. So I've been a filmmaker for the past more than 10 years. And two years ago, I decided to take the plunge and go into entrepreneurship. So I first started with joining Entrepreneur First, but I did not form a startup when I was there. So a couple months later, my friend and ex-colleague decided to leave his company. So we decided to start a company together. Yeah, the first company did not really work out because it was about employer branding. And then COVID hit, so no one was hiring. <laughs> so we had to pivot at the time. And so in April last year, we decided to work on Sandjoy, which is what we our current startup is. It's a marketplace where consumers can book content creators to make video greetings for their loved ones. Yeah, that's where I am now. You know, Son, I think you know, you've also done quite a lot more than that as well. You have been BAFTA award-winning Singaporean producer who has published and made lots and lots of live-action and animated short films as well and won so many awards. So I got to ask, uh, how did you first get started and how did this film thing first bite you? It was actually when I was a, a child, there were things that happened around me. And then I was just like thinking, oh, if I can close my eyes and remember that moment forever, <laughs> that would be great. So later on when I grew up, because I was like five years old at the time. So when I grew up, I realized that, hey, that thing is called a camera. So I, I asked my dad whether I can get a camera. So that's when I started just filming random moments around me of my friends, of my family. It was always at the back of my mind that I want to go into filmmaking. But the climate back then was not perfect for, for filmmakers. Like there were very few filmmakers in Singapore. Parents are of course very worried. Like what, what is the future of filmmaking? Like who knows whether we can survive or make money from it. Yeah, so so I did not dare to have the idea that, okay, I want to go into filmmaking because I, I come from a quite a humble family. It was only when I realized that, hey, NTU, like Nanyang Technological University, they offer a course in filmmaking. So that's when I was like, okay, if I go to NTU and I graduate, I still have an NTU degree, right? I can be a teacher or something. <laughs> At least that's something, you know, I can teach to my dad about. <laughs> so, so that's when I decided to take the degree at NTU. That, that's when my filmmaking like career started. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of eyeballing your profile here as well. You know, what's interesting is that you started out with that eye for film initially, but you chose to deepen your craft and keep going at it. So what explains, you know, the difference between, you know, people who want to explore the creative industry versus you actually choosing to make it actually something that you want to deepen your craft and master it? Mm. Actually, the landscape has changed quite a bit since then. Because back then, it was not possible to shoot something with the iPhone or like not everyone has a camera that is good enough in order to like get a screening at the cinema or, but nowadays we hear things like, oh, people shot a movie on the iPhone. These tools have become accessible. Back when I first joined filmmaking, we were even using tapes. 
Yeah, so it was not digital at all. That's why my course is actually called Digital Filmmaking because we were trying to learn the new ways of filmmaking. Back then, you really have to like be be in it. You have to learn all the, the traditional tools in cinematography, directing and all of that in order to, to produce a film. But right now, the, the tools have been democratized and a lot of people have access to it. And actually, to me, that, that is really exciting. Yeah. When you were you know, taking those initial courses in digital filmmaking, and that's interesting you notice, which is these tools have become easier and easier over time. How have you seen the industry shift, actually? Because you've been part of that shift as well, right? I mean, you're part of that new wave of filmmakers who have been taking on these new tools and catalyzing them as well. So talk us through how have you seen the industry shift? Yeah, so back then when I was in school, like all my friends or even me, we aspire to be Wong Kawai or Quentin Tarantino <laughs> or like Tai Ming Liang. But I recently heard from my ex-lecturer that the students who come into the filmmaking course, some of them, they want to be YouTubers and TikTokers. So we have quite different pathways now <laughs> because I, I think they, they see how the YouTubers or TikTokers of the day, they have been generating a lot of income, like they are the new stars of today. That's why the mindset of the idea of filmmaking has shifted a little bit. But of course, there's, there's like still a big group of people in the traditional craft of filmmaking. They put in the, the hours and years of craft to get something beautiful to go onto the cinema. It has become like a, a different genre of its own now. Interesting. So you wouldn't look at it as a conflict between creators versus filmmakers, but you actually look at creators as a genre of film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really believe that with the tools that we have nowadays, that's why like it gave birth to a big group of different people who have access to filmmaking to be able to create different types of content. What's interesting, of course, is that you just now you mentioned the role models, right? Wang Kawai and Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and so there's this also interesting dynamic of East versus West, right? Uh, which is, I think, quite interesting microcosm for Southeast Asia, right? <laughs> you know, like that weird melting pot for the different cultures. So how do you see that blend or conflict between East versus West? How do you navigate that? Mm, yeah, that's a interesting question. Because actually, I, I was educated in film in Singapore. Then I went to the UK, where I did my master's, where I received the education from the West as well. So I think throughout my, my career, I've always been thinking like, how do we blend the East and the West and create a product that people today can understand? Because young people like us in Singapore, we're actually very Westernized. Like we, we actually absorb more Western content than Eastern content. Yeah, so we're thinking like, okay, what, what is the voice for us, for our generation? We don't really speak Chinese to our friends anymore. Yeah, but the, the movies that we see coming out of this region, they are all very Mandarin-based. They are like, at one point there was even a conversation like, oh, okay, if you see Singaporean faces speaking English, that film is not accurate. Like, it's, it feels weird. But actually, interestingly, it, Crazy Rich Asians, they found a voice for the Asian faces to be able to speak English. Of course, it's, it's a very niche area. Like, it's a very niche aspect of our culture. Like, not everyone is as rich as them and all that. But I, I found that at least there was, there's now an access to the West. There is actually one film that both East and West can relate to. I think that is a great start. Yeah. And that gives birth to a lot more filmmakers and people like us to be able to have a representation on screen. 
Yeah. When you think about that representation, obviously, East versus West, creators versus film, what was that like winning you know, BAFTA, right? You know, representing Singapore. How did that feel for you as part of the experience? It was actually quite unbelievable night. <laughs> Just I, I got to meet a lot of the, the big stars. Like I saw Jennifer Lawrence and Daniel Craig about 50 meters away from me. <laughs> I did not get to shake their hands or what, but it was uh, quite a magical evening. In fact, one of the best moments of the night was when I was on the on the winner stage. So everybody have to like queue up to shake Prince William's hand and like take a photo together. After the photo taking session, there was this lady. She's a black woman. Like she came up to me and she said to me, "I'm really glad that you are here with me tonight. There are so few of us." So I look around me and in fact, there, we were the only two non-white and non-male people there on the stage. Yeah, so so I was glad that we could you know, share that moment together. Yeah, I wouldn't have noticed that if she didn't tell me about it. Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting observation, actually. What was that like for you to realize that you were one of the few non-white, non-male folks on stage, you know, or part of the winners, part of the representation there? Yeah, so actually, I think it's a, it was an interesting journey for me. Because in Singapore, we are like the Chinese is the majority population. So I never really felt like, okay, I was underrepresented or I'm at the lower end of the stick. So when I moved to the UK, I never felt like, okay, I was different from my classmates, that my skin color is different. I, I didn't notice that. It took me around six months to nine months before I really felt that, hey, like I'm, I'm different from the rest of them. It was when people were saying, oh, your English is so good, even if you're not a white person. Or like like when I was walking on the streets, like people would uh, storm in front of me and try to scare me and try to say like, oh, konnichiwa, really loudly. It's like they, they would deliberately try to like scare me. That, that's when I realized, okay, I'm actually different. I need to be careful in this place. Yeah, I, I've done... On a similar note, I, I think I've done quite a bit of improv. So similar to you in your journey, I got to learn improv because I was in the States. So it was very Western art form in that sense, a comedy, and I enjoyed it a lot. And I always remember that it took me a while, but I realized that I was often the only Asian person in all mm. the classes. <laughs> yeah. So you'd be like, consistently in all my courses, it was like, you know, like there'd be about 10 to 15 mm. to 20 people. I'll be like mm. the one Asian person in all the classes. Or maybe it'll be two sometimes. I think that's one time that was quite interesting was there's a scene and basically I was uh, doing an archetype of like a Gendalf reference. And then halfway through the scene, I realized that everybody around me thought I was Confucius. What? And, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I never felt so so much dissonance all of a sudden because yeah. I was like, well, there's that, the, the typing, right? Anyway, mm-hmm. so... I mean, obviously I had to learn that I had to like use more Gandalf quotes as well. Mm. Uh, but it was interesting to see that typing as me as Confucius as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also they also didn't know how to handle it as well because they also didn't want to like you know, <laughs> interact with me as Confucius as well. So anyway, so we had an interesting dynamic for that scene. So uh, a lot of people running around in that scene. You have this voice dynamic, which is like East versus West. There's a film dynamic. You're representing it at BAFTA. And you think, how do you choose to represent that voice from your perspective now? Because, you know, obviously at a start, you are feeling the insider versus the outsider. So in Singapore, you are the insider in many ways. But in the West, you know, on the stage of the BAFTA, you're the outsider, right? Mm. Now, you know, obviously we're both more mature, more professionals now. So how do you have you matured in terms of 
representing that or matured in terms of integrating both of that, the insider voice and the outsider voice in your art or in terms of how you think about the art form? Mm, that's interesting. In fact, when I came back from the UK, I had like a reverse culture shock again. Because actually throughout my teenage years, I'm very Chinese. Like I speak Mandarin to all my friends. In fact, my mom said, oh, you have to learn English. So you have to go to an English JC. So I went to uh, Victoria JC. So actually the, the first week of my class, like it was the first time that I spent one whole week speaking in English. And I, I had Indian friends and Malay friends for the first time in my life. <laughs> so, But after I went to the UK and I came back to Singapore, people suddenly thought that I'm very like Ang Mao Pai. I'm very English educated. So I work at this office that is very Chinese based. So like my, my boss thought like, oh, I'm very English educated. So everybody spoke to me in English. Then suddenly one day they realized that, oh, I can speak Chinese. <laughs> so there was a bit of a reverse culture shock for me. Then I realized, okay, I have to readapt back to Singapore. Yeah. And I think like this, I try to like take these up experiences that I have. And in fact, I, I don't think I have found that voice yet. I'm still searching. Yeah, even in my in my works, like I think, okay, should I make a film in Mandarin or English? Like what is more real to the people here? I sometimes I receive scripts from directors and they ask me, okay, like, is this film suitable for the American market or the Singapore market? So I, I read it like the the way it's being written is very Americanized because the director has spent time in the US, but the whole film is set in Singapore. So we are, we are thinking like, okay, how, how do we integrate this? If we make something that is too Singaporean, like we have Singlish involved, then it's only suitable for the Singaporean market. Like the film will never travel outside of Singapore. But if we Americanized it, would people think like, oh, it's another crazy rich Asian. It's not relatable. So I think we are still searching for, for the voice that really represents us and other people in the world would be interested in. That's actually an interesting dynamic, right? Because we talked a little bit about East versus West in that sense, or Singapore and you know, America, because there's so much center of gravity, really, honestly, around Hollywood. I mean, that's the indisputably one giant mass capital, right, of um, the talent that is there, one pole of the world. And then I think I think there's a question of so like what's the Southeast Asia voice, right? Because mm, it's such a yeah. fragmented in terms of like different geographies, mm. different languages, mm. different audiences in terms of their preferences for content, but also in terms of their understanding of what exact movie language and styles are, right? Mm. So how do you think about that? Do you feel like there's a there's an ASEAN art form out there or there's a <laughs> <laughs> a Southeast um, Asia voice for Indonesia, Vietnam, Singapore, Thailand, Singapore, yeah, yeah. Malaysia. Yeah, for sure. Philippines. I, yeah. I think to really find that voice, we first have to appreciate what we have in Singapore. That is that is truly unique to us. Because a lot of times we are like, okay, we don't want to speak Singlish because we think it's like uh, low class or something. But in fact, to Westerners, that is very interesting. Yeah, the way we speak and how we reduce like the sentences so that we speak in very precise words. I think that that is interesting. I think we have to first like observe around us and find things that that is actually very Singaporean. Like for example, outside of Singapore, you don't you don't see it anywhere else because we are right right inside the culture. We are very embedded in it, so we don't really appreciate it so much. In fact, we kind of look down on it, and it takes like a third person from elsewhere, like a foreigner to tell us that, hey, this is interesting. 
I was thinking about Anthony Chen's film, Ilo Ilo, like one about the little boy and the, the maid. So I was speaking to my Western friends about it. Like all of them say that, hey, this is really, really interesting to them because in the West, if you are in a family like this, lower uh, middle class family, you would never have a maid. Yeah. So, but, but in Singapore, like, a lot of people in that family have mates. So I, I never thought that this, this would be interesting to Westerners. So I think we have to first look around us and start appreciating and be positive about our environment. Yeah. No, oh, I like that. We just, instead of looking at it as a lack of something, like being appreciative of what we actually already have and saying that there's actually value in that fundamental, right? And so one interesting aspect about that, of course, is that we also chose to really you know, choose to kind of act as a producer in terms of, I think a lot of people are confused about what a producer does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like that's something a lot of people are going to ask. For me, I think my first introduction to producer would be um, Conan O'Brien. Uh, I think there's a famous producer called Jordan Schlenksky. And then <laughs> Conan O'Brien always likes to ask mm-hmm. his producer, say, what do you do, right? And mm-hmm. Jordan says that he performs various duties. <laughs> And that's undefined, right? So, yeah. And that's a kind of now a recurring gag. Could you share a little bit more about, you know, for those who don't know yet? I mean, over, you know, so many years, right? Over like, you know, 10 years of winning awards and mastering the craft of being a producer. What exactly have you mastered in the subset of being a producer actually means? Mm, We always call it like the Pauka Liao duty. So we really, we do everything. Like we start from looking for funding, like managing the project, looking for crew or like people to work together, like all the way to marketing and distribution. In fact, I remember when I was at the master's course in the UK, the teacher told us, can you write on the board what a producer does? So all my classmates, we wrote on the board and we end up with like 50 over duties. <laughs> so, so he said, okay, but there's only one thing that a producer really has to do. So he made us like think of all, like, so the 50 things on the board, he said, okay, which ones can you outsource to other people? Okay. So for example, looking for location, you can hire someone. If you don't know how to find funding, you, you engage someone as an executive producer, pay them a fee. If you don't know how to do distribution, you hire a marketing expert, like a distribution expert. So we streamlined and then we realized, okay, there's really one thing that only you have to do as a producer, which is to look for the project. No one else can do that for you. You are the only one who can decide whether you are going to take up this project. It struck something in me. Then I realized that, oh yeah, that's true. Okay, so then I make it really a mission to source for projects, find something that, that I can really connect to, and then I form a team around it or Sometimes directors or like writers, they pitch stories to me and I think to myself, okay, is this something that I want to spend the next three to five years on? Yeah. In fact, I spent five years trying to make a short film happen. So the filmmaking is really a, like a very lengthy journey. So you really do want to pick projects that you can relate to. Yeah. How do you find that fit between X to Y? Is it just like intuition and you just look at a project and it's like, this is a fit? We we'll talk about it later to some extent, but you know they call it the founder problem fit, which is like when you're doing a startup, you know, do you resonate with the problem? Do you actually want to spend seven to ten years on it? So how does a producer find a script or a concept that resonates with them? Yeah, I, I would say it's it's really not an easy process and I definitely made mistakes along the way. In fact, I was thinking there are some people that I've let down as well. 
So my friend told me, right, there are four reasons you can take up a project. One is for friendship, one is for money, one is for sex, and one is for, for glory. Yeah, so there are four reasons you can take up a project. So I've done it for friends. Like some friends say that, oh, I really love this project, so can you help me? There are some that is, I would say maybe for, for glory, like the director is someone famous. So I was like, okay, someone that I really want to work with. Yeah. These reasons have actually brought me to unpleasant places because I felt that, you know, I did not really think through very much. I spent too long with the, the director on it. In fact, I felt like I felt bad because I wasted both of our time. It was only after two years then I realized that, okay, maybe this is not the project that I want to carry five years of my life on. So I, I, that's why now I'm very cautious about taking up new projects. I don't want to let, let people down. <laughs> I really want to be sure that, okay, this is something that I want to do. I want to be with you through this journey. Then I take it up. Yeah. Interesting. So it's more like, what has really changed for you is really like the threshold about which you care about something that has really changed over time. That's really interesting. And so what's interesting is that over time, you know, you've had that on and all of this and you've slowly made a transition towards not just being a producer, but also experimenting more on the technology side or at least approaching it more from an entrepreneurial side as well. What was the driver behind that transition to start exploring more of the entrepreneurial path instead of being a, continuing to be a producer? Which you have already you know, won awards for, mastered and continued to you know, do well in. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so it was actually inspired by my by my co-founder, like, like he was the trigger. I remember we were, we were ex-colleagues. So we were sitting in the office pantry one day and he, he asked me that question you asked me, what does a producer do? So I, I told him everything that I said to you just now. And he said, Oh, so you're an entrepreneur. So I'm like, Oh. I'm an entrepreneur. What was an entrepreneur? <laughs> so, so he gave me some, some books to read, like, uh, Airbnb, Uber. <laughs> so I read out all the, all the backgrounds. So I was like, hmm, interesting, but okay, I'm, I'm still going to make films. <laughs> so I, I did not jump on the wagon immediately. It was actually about, it took me about 18 months. Like I was observing the, the things around me. Like I was looking at how YouTubers are on the rise and like how people can take a, iPhone and start shooting things and realize that wow like this this craft has been really democratized like a lot of people can do it now it's not niche group of people who went through four years of film school who can make a film that's when I realized okay I, I need to really look into this so in fact I even went to take up like courses to learn to be a YouTuber <laughs> just to try and see what what the journey is like I, I want to feel like I'm in the the trend trying to see what what's new coming up yeah. And also there were a lot of questions in my mind at the time. Like, why are people getting paid late? Like in the film industry, sometimes people get paid six to eight months late. And why are people still bringing pen and paper on set when we can <laughs> use the computer? Like there are some softwares that we could use, but I feel that, that there are a lot of things that I really want to change. And the only way to do that is to actually start something of my own. Yeah. That's when I decided to take the plunge. Really interesting. How has that set of learnings changed, right? You know, because you said that you, that lens that you said was really the lens from where you were a producer looking at what you would learn or how you thought becoming a founder or you would learn from trying something new. But now that you're on the founder side of it, looking back, right? And you've gone through two iterations of one giant pivot as well, right? As well. You're out in Korea now and yeah. you know, you know, doing all kinds of different things as well. Mm. 
How has that set of lessons changed or matured for you from your perspective? Definitely ne- less innocent now. <laughs> like, you know, I was telling my, my co-founder, wow, like we have aged so much these two years. <laughs> but okay, like maybe we can blame COVID. <laughs> so, and we were just looking at the pictures from two years ago. We we're like, okay, like we were a bit hotter back then. Like what happened to us? <laughs> I think for sure, like we were, we were less idealistic than before. I think we learned a lot of practical things along the way, like setting up a company, being on our own. We will often say like, oh, okay, back then we were not happy with certain systems, but now we are unhappy with like not having, the, like um, not, not having the certainty. Yeah. So what is painful now is actually the uncertainty. We really don't know what's going to happen next month or like in a year. So it's really hard to, to plan for things. And I would say that part is the most painful in the, in the founder's journey. Because when you're an employee, at least you know that, okay, no matter how you do, like next month, you will get your salary. <laughs> but now it's, it's very hard to, to plan. Yeah. What's interesting is that, do you feel like the scope of what you shared, right? Like the producer, the 50 things that you had to write down. Do you feel like that was a good encapsulation or good preparation for you to also become a founder? Yeah, I think for sure there are some skill sets that I think I managed to bring over from producing. I think project management for sure. I think we, we managed to set up like a good infrastructure to, to manage our startup. Even though I honestly, I did not have a business like school training, but I felt that, okay, like the things that I'm learning now, I've learned that in producing. Like, for example, accounting, financial management, and even fundraising things like how to make the pitch deck, like what might attract people to invest in the, the, the startup. I think some, some of those skill sets are, I managed to bring over to the to entrepreneurship. I'm sure a lot of people ask you about what's yeah. it like to become a founder now, right? Yeah. What advice do you give them now? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> before you, they become a founder, any advice you give them? Um... Probably the biggest lesson that I learned is that you have to be okay with uncertainty. Like, like I said just now, um, that is so far that my, my biggest pinpoint <laughs> in my personal life. I think they have to be okay with uncertainty and go with the flow and like just be, always be optimistic and hopeful that things will be soft. I always tell my co-founder, like, we say that, okay, if the startup fails, it's most likely a human reason. Like maybe one of us has stopped believing in the idea and one of us decide to give up. It's, it's most likely a human reason rather than other things that happen around you. Isn't being a producer also have a lot of uncertainty? How is the, the taste or the flavor of uncertainty different from a producer where the script or the project could go sideways or nowhere different from that being a founder from your perspective? Yeah, really good question. I think as a producer, the uncertainty can be quite painful as well. But I think in the in the film world, what most people do is they have commercial jobs at the site. So um, they, they spend maybe 70% of the time working on commercial projects like adverts, make some money, and they spend 30% of the time doing what they love, like raising funding for the movie. Yeah, but I think in the startup world, I... I don't think I have the, the luxury to go and take up like commercial projects because I feel like I have to be 100% in it. Because for a very long time, there were only two of us, me and my co-founder. We didn't have like employees. We do have to be 100% dedicated to the startup. So I think that that is the, the difference, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, so that's the interesting... 
there's a focus dynamic as well, right? Mm. You're kind of implying, which is that as a founder, you have to be 100% focused mm. versus at least as a producer, to some extent, you can actually diversify your career mm. a little bit to yes, yes. bridge your lifestyle as well. Mm. One interesting thing that you mentioned as well mm. was really the aspect about also choosing to build a startup in the creative space, right? Mm. So, which is good, right? Because mm. now you're building something that you roughly mm. know but it's also not the same, right? Because it's mm. a different flavor, a different approach. How has it changed your view of the industry, right? You know, because mm. at the start of it, you mentioned, you know, creators are a subset of film. <laughs> and now I guess you're looking at the creative industry as a subset of technology or at least mm. a different approach. So how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I think I have definitely matured a lot of my thought process on how the industry works. I think for for the longest time, right, I avoided YouTube and like TikTok and all the social media because in my mind, I was like, okay, this this is not film. So I, I rejected it. If I do watch it, I would watch some music videos or something that is like in a different headspace for me. But I, I think right now, I kind of integrate those together as one big ecosystem. Because I, I think that the YouTubers, like the TikTokers, they are the new content creators of, of today. Like with this new technology, they manage to generate this type of content. And a lot of young people are actually interested in this kind of content. And one, one part of me that wanted to be a filmmaker was like, I want to make things that influence people. For example, that's why I made like post apart something about climate change. And later on, I made uh, Let Me Kill My Mother First. It's a short film about uh, child abuse. Yeah, so I, I don't want to make content that affect people so that people care about that subject. Actually, what disappointed me was that a film that I spent five years working on, I feel that less than 1,000 people in the world have seen it. Yeah, and I looked at a, a YouTube video like and upload overnight, they get 1 million views. <laughs> So that, that really triggered something in me. I was like, okay, how, how do I get, get in that space? Like, how do I make something that influence people, that people care about? Because all these eyeballs that they have generated from the young generation is something that I, I'm kind of envious of. <laughs> like, so I, I told myself, okay, I, I need to understand how this works. I may never be a YouTuber <laughs> or like a TikToker, but I want to understand this market. Yeah, that, that's when it caught my interest and I studied it. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you're basically suggesting that the next, you know, Wong Kar Wai, the next Quentin Tarantino <laughs> will have started by shooting on the iPhone or on a mobile phone and would have started on TikTok and started their craft there instead of having to work their way up mm. on a production house. Mm. Actually, I think it would be probably two, it, it could be two different groups of people because um, filmmaking is like a craft on its own. Like to achieve something of that level still requires years of craft and knowledge. So people who want to go down that path, they can still do that path. But I think there is another group of people who are creating different types of content and we should not discount them. Yeah. Yeah, you're also saying there's a stylistic or genre difference mm. as well. Yes, so yes. The Wong Kar Wai of TikTok is different from the mm. Wong Kar Wai of film. But yes. of course, they may have, they probably would have started using their phones actually instead of <laughs> you using your camera slash camcorder mm. yeah. uh, back in the day, right? That's true. 
Uh, interesting. And so, could you share with us a time that you have been brave? Mm. I I would think it would be the time I went to UK to study without a, a scholarship. <laughs> Because I, I applied for the scholarship, I didn't receive it. And so I was in this like seven days hellhole. Like on one hand, okay, I'm, I'm happy I got into the film school where only eight students get accepted each year. But on the other hand, I'm like, okay, where am I going to come out with 80,000 all of a sudden? So that few days was really, really stressful. But I was like, okay, like, Let's, let's just go for it. Like I, I can borrow money from somewhere. And luckily I had some savings from the two years of working. Yeah. I'm really glad that I, I made the plunge. <laughs> Sometimes my friends would tell me, Hey, son, you, you don't invest. You are not a big gambler, but like something that you did is like, it's quite scary that you, you gambled 50,000 of your, <laughs> of your savings on this and you don't even know what's going to happen. Yeah. I, I'm glad that I made that choice. <laughs> I am also glad that you made it as well. <laughs> That's actually a common problem for so many folks, right? Because I think in Singapore, you know, it's one of the rare countries where actually people get scholarships uh, from the government to go to a good university. So that's actually a privilege, I think, in Southeast Asia, right? Because lots of people in other Southeast Asia countries, they may not necessarily have the knowledge to be able to apply, let's just say. But even if they do, they definitely don't have government access. But let's just say, I think as a common story in Singapore and I think across in other countries, like in Indonesia or Vietnam, where they can go to good universities like yourself, but they can't, it's just non-conventional, right? Or they can't, there's no government scholarship, etc. How would you recommend them to weigh the problem of whether to go versus stay at a local school? That's one. And secondarily, I guess, if they were to go, how would you recommend them to think about putting together the capital, I guess, to get there? Yeah. Mm, great question. So I think I was quite lucky. Like the first, so the first year I, I didn't get the scholarship. So every day I just ate like, porridge. <laughs> but the second year, I managed to receive the IMDA scholarship. So that really helped my life there. And I I think back on that experience, I was, okay, if I hadn't received a second year of scholarship, what, what would I have done? So I think I would probably continue my part-time job because uh, back then I, I worked at the bars during the weekends and also in the evenings to get some uh, savings. Yeah. So I, I would probably continue to have done that. And the school was actually very helpful. Like they're saying, okay, if you can't afford it right now, like you can slowly pay us back. So they were very helpful to some international students. Yeah. But often the, like that, that fear really drives people away from taking a plunge. My advice is that you probably need to have like a, a few plans, like plan A, B, C, D, E in, in your mind. I, I wouldn't want anyone to get into a bad financial debt or anything. Like I think it's about weighing, okay, what is the worst case scenario that can happen to you? Even in the startup life right now, I feel that we often compare ourselves to our friends and <laughs> we feel bad about it because our friends are making enough money to buy a condo or like a car and there's no way we could have done that. I think it's, it's really about, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Okay. Currently, my, my parents are, I'm lucky that they are well and I'm okay. Like I make enough to at least feed myself. I don't have to depend on them to give me money. I think those, those are the, the things that I, I would think about. And if you can accept this, you, you can take this plunge. Yeah. 
So I think firstly, don't get into debt. <laughs> Secondly, weigh the options around you and see a worst scenario that you can get into and whether you can accept it. I know this sounds crazy because you kind of said that you're happy with how your life has turned out since you taking on that decision to go to the school. Yet I, I wonder, and I'm sure you've thought about this, how do you think your life would have turned out if you chose not to go? You know, what would that lens be? Do you think you would be where you are today? Or I'm so curious. Have you watched that movie or played that movie ahead? Would you still be the same low certain where, you know, just you're hungry, you're driven, you're hardworking. I mean, I'm just kind of curious. Because to you, it's a pivotal moment that you chose. This is the moment you chose as your brave moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious how you think about it. Yeah, like all, all the time, to be to be honest. <laughs> I, I was thinking, okay, if I had kept the job back then, I didn't go to film school, I didn't take the entrepreneurial path, what would I have right now? I probably have enough savings to buy a house and <laughs> all that. I, I would have been in a, in a corporate role and probably a high level manager or directorial level. But I was thinking that, uh, you know, I, I can't put my mind in all those spaces because what I have now is actually like the freedom to do what I actually love to do. And also like the living in no regrets. Yeah. So at least when I'm 40, I was like, okay, I, I took that plunge when I was 25 and when I was 30. Yeah. I, I think that that part is actually quite priceless. I think these decisions can be quite priceless. Yeah, I, I don't know it yet, but I, I think I would appreciate myself taking this plunge when I'm 40 or 50. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that, uh, son. I'd love to wrap things up by paraphrasing the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is Thank you so much for sharing your journey about your creative start, about how you recorded the moments around you as a child uh, to how that eventually led to your decisions that let you uh, go to school, to film, to be a producer, to eventually winning BAFTA and how that felt to be hanging out with all the celebrities. So I love that journey. I think an inspirational one for that representation and for that sharing that insight, right? About what that journey looks like from a skills and chronological perspective. I think the second, of course, is actually that very interesting discussion about representation from two angles. The first being East versus West, from the idols being and role models being Wong Kar Wai versus Quentin Tarantino to looking at scripts representing, for example, Singapore versus America, to you studying in the UK, to working here across Southeast Asia, and what it was like to be on the stage, speaking with other lady and being one of the few uh, non-white, non-male folks <laughs> on stage, which is an interesting thing to realize, right? And also, I think being frank about what it means to be an, an insider in Singapore growing up, but to be an outsider in the UK as a student, but to again have that reverse culture shock coming back again in Singapore, that's interesting as well. And I think the second angle, of course, is the angle about what it means to find that Southeast Asia voice, right? So I think that angle of representation is really interesting. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about the uncertainty of being a founder, which is about how the 50 things you learned as a producer, <laughs> the various responsibilities, <laughs> uh, has uh, helped prepare you to be a founder in many ways, yet... Yeah, it's also been interesting to learn about the uncertainty because you've had to be a lot more focused and you can't diversify to the same extent. And I think there's also a lot of learnings they've had around 
how it's also matured your understanding of the creative industry and how you see creators as a, not just a genre difference, but also a starting and technological difference for the industry as well. So lots of different learnings that's uh, there for everybody and especially for myself. So thank you so much for sharing, certain. Yeah, thanks for having me and the great questions. <laughs> thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.